Good morning, Cross Point. It's happened. We've made it. 2023, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. If we haven't met uh, for a holiday uh, Sunday, we had an unusual uh, number of people here for the first time in the first service and met a few newcomers here in the second service. If we haven't met, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point, and I am delighted to open the Bible again with you. Uh, let me just add my own word of welcome and a word of explanation and invitation to you regarding the Wagner family that you just welcomed into membership. Uh, Chris and his wife, Noelle Wagner, have a, a really long and distinguished record of ministry uh, in the local church. Chris has a, a really solid biblical and theological education, worked as a pastor for many years, uh, worked very and served the Lord very well uh, in a local church uh, nearby. Uh, God has him elsewhere working with the county of Orange now, but he remains uh, knowledgeable and remain, uh, retains his pastor's heart. So early in this uh, new year, we are going to start a whole new facet of our church's ministry. I'm going to, we're going to call it Crosspoint Equip, and it's going to consist of both classes and occasional talks, not necessarily sermons but biblical and doctrinal talks to help us all navigate this strange new world that we find ourselves in. I spent a lot of time answering very specific questions from stories and problems and issues that are literally just torn right out of the headlines uh, to move those pastoral conversations into something that's offered to the whole church. We want to offer both biblical teaching and biblical teaching that applies to contemporary issues. That all starts very soon and uh, Chris is going to be very, very instrumental in one of those early classes. He has some of the best material regarding the Old Testament that I've ever seen. It's a very short course that he wrote himself. Uh, just in talking, over, uh, talking it over with him over coffee over the last few weeks, I learned a few things. I went to seminary too, and I was a little indignant that he had figured all this out. And with all the people that I'd ever studied with, nobody had ever explained it quite as clearly and quite as helpfully as Pastor Chris has. So we're delighted to have him and his family on board. When that first class rolls out regarding the Old Testament, you'll want to be here and just stay tuned for those new ministry updates. Good? Did I lose you? Excellent. Do you have your Bible? Please take it, take it out and open it to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and we are going to be in chapter 17. You'll notice we're in the Old Testament precisely. It's roughly two-thirds of the Bible itself, but it's so often overlooked this morning, we're going to look at one of the Mount Rushmore stories of the Old Testament. One of the most familiar stories in the Bible. It's so familiar that it's actually woven its way into our popular culture. People reference it all the time. But I'd like to show you, I've shared this story with you maybe two or three times in the 17 years I've been here. I'd like to revisit it. Because it's in the Bible, like everything in the Bible, it's in there for a specific purpose. 
And if you can step back into history, what we're reading was written 3,000 years ago, roughly. It tells stories from the life of King David, born 1,000 years before Jesus was born, so roughly 3,000 years before our time. And we all have the prospect and the excitement of a new year. If you think about it, it's a little arbitrary. It's just a change in the calendar. But almost every person I know, and I certainly reflect back on the year that has passed, and I look forward with a little anticipation and sometimes a little bit of dread, depending on my mood and what I'm going through, on what the new year may be. 1 Samuel 17 is not in the Bible as a motivational talk for the new year. It's much bigger than that. In it, you're going to meet two very different kinds of men, given identical opportunities from God, who each made choices. And you're going to see their lives diverge based on what they each decided. And what is in the Old Testament, I read in the New Testament, is written both as a warning and an encouragement to those of us who read it. So if you'll take the warnings and the encouragements of the Old Testament and step with Jesus into this new year, you can enjoy the blessings of one of those men, King David, even though you may never be a king or queen yourself. Before we open God's Word together, let's pray. Father, now we have the privilege of having Your Word in our language we can take out a copy of sacred scripture anytime we like. We can even turn on our phones and in a moment be encountering your story, your character, your promises, your warnings, your blessings. Thank you. Help us stand, Lord, with David in the Valley of Elah this morning and see what he saw so that we may believe and do as he did. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, 1 Samuel, that strange name, may not mean much to you. Let me orient you to where we are. The Bible begins in earnest. God's dealing with people specifically to save them begins in earnest in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. The first 11 chapters are creation and God dealing with the whole world at once. In Genesis chapter 12, it slows down and zeroes in to the life of a single man named Abram. And he has made an unlikely promise that though he is advanced in years and has no children, he, a fatherless man, is going to be the father of a great nation. And someday that nation is going to bless the whole world. That promise is made in Genesis chapter 12 in its first three verses. The rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 to the very end of Revelation is the unfolding saga of how God kept that promise. You should take this lesson early on as you begin to see God deal with Abram and later with Moses and later with Joshua. One of God's favorite things to do is to put people he's dealing with in impossible situations and then rescue them and deliver them from them so that they will know that their rescue did not come from their own strength and their own ability. You ever heard this thing that God will never give you more than you can handle? Absolutely false. That's a good motivational slogan. It makes a great t-shirt. It's not only untrue by reading the Bible, it's untrue just dealing with life. 
People are overwhelmed all the time. That's a different sermon, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells me just the opposite. The truth is that God will never put you in a situation that He can't handle. That's the biblical truth. God routinely puts people, beginning with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, in impossible situations that they cannot possible, impossibly master themselves, and then in, when they obey Him, He shows up, does exactly what He promised, and then they are rescued, then they are saved, then they succeed. It doesn't happen through human means, as you're about to see. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God begins to deal with the nation of Israel. They actually become, in a short period of time, an extraordinarily great nation. But then they are enslaved through deceit to an even more powerful nation named Egypt. And that story looms large as well. God takes an unconvinced, fearful man named Moses, calls him from the backside of the desert, sends him to Egypt. He famously tells Pharaoh that the Lord said, let my people go. And through miracles that Moses cannot possibly account for through his own strength, Israel is set free. They move to the promised land under Moses' leadership. Joshua takes them across the river. They conquer most of the land, begin to thrive in it, and then this is, Egypt, this is Israel in every season of its history. Rather than enjoy their God and His blessings, they keep looking at the pagan nations around them and start saying, boy, I wish we were more like that. Maybe we should do what they do. And they continually move through this cycle. You can read about it in the book of the Judges of obedience and blessing and disobedience and rebellion and captivity, and God keeps raising up leaders, political leaders named judges who set them free. The last of the judges and the first of Israel's prophets is the man named Samuel. You read about his life primarily here in 1 Samuel. Israel made a disastrous decision. If you'll flip back with me in your Bible, please. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Israel makes a disastrous decision of saying to Samuel, we want a king, we want a ruler, we want a leader we can see. Samuel warns them very, very specifically and predicts exactly what their kings are eventually going to do to Israel, saying you have God as your king, and they say, no, we know, but we want a big strapping stud of a man who can wield the sword in front of us. We want a leader we can see. And they get one. His name was Saul. And all you need to know about Saul is that this desire by Israel to be like all the other nations is honored by God. And he gives them the kind of king that they think they want. Saul is described as the most handsome and the tallest among all the Israelites. You want a guy you can look at? He's good to look at. How about him? And then, even to Saul's own surprise, God's Spirit moves on him and blesses him, and Saul does things that Saul himself cannot account for, because occasionally Saul walks with God and does what God wants. But not for long. 
He disobeys God. His pride, his reasons, his excuses are always filtering back up into Saul's life. And I don't have time to tell you his whole tragic story, but here's a spiritual lesson you can take along the way. Every time Saul disobeys God, Saul always has a good reason to do so. And that is the nature of sin. A lot of people in our church or in our recovery ministry experiencing the grace and the freedom that Jesus can give from things like drugs and alcohol. And one of them taught me a great saying from the 12 steps, from that whole culture. Regarding the weekly meeting where alcoholics or addicts sit in a circle and talk about their problems, he said, taught me this, your best thinking got you here. You thought you were right. You thought it was a good idea. You thought you knew the way. And all your cleverness, all your intelligence, all of your knowing better got you into this meeting talking about this kind of bondage. That's a picture of sin in all of its expressions, not just drugs and alcohol. Israel thinks they know better. And Saul oscillates between pride and great success. He has success, God blesses him, God uses him as he's never used anybody before, any king before, he's their first king. He's doing at times and occasionally a great job, but then Saul offends and disobeys God for the last time, and I read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Don't miss this. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Most Bible readers know the man after God's own heart is David. And the story is written this way to invite this question from the reader. 3,000 years later, the urgent question is, what made the difference? Both of these men were well thought of. Both of these men specifically were told were handsome and good-looking. People were drawn to them. But one ended up a disaster. One is going to lead his nation into disastrous spiritual failure and die on the battlefield himself while David, so long as David obeys God, David is blessed like no king ever has been in all of Israel's history. What made the difference? Well, another clue is given to us in chapter 16. Samuel is sent to the house of David, to anoint him. And they bring out all the older brothers, and Samuel cannot keep himself from falling into the same kind of mistake that Israel makes. He goes by appearances. Look in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. Regarding David's older brother, we read this. When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab, that's David's eldest brother, when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Take this to heart, Christian. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
Here's why. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on, what's it say? The heart. How do we become a woman? How do we become a man after God's own heart? The famous story of David and Goliath is actually told to answer that question. It's often used as simple self-motivation. It's much bigger and much more important than that. What Samuel wants to teach you in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is that when ordinary people believe God, extraordinary things always happen. Read with me, 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Some of us have been there. And to me, the, one of the biggest surprises of visiting the nation of Israel is to stand in the valley of Elah and realize how very small and shallow that place is. Don't imagine that this is some giant place where people stand at a, small, at a great distance. No, this is a small geographical feature. The valley is actually short and shallow. If you stand in the valley of Elah, this year sometime you'll see that they came to do battle with one another. The Israelites are standing with their homes, their families directly behind them. They should be motivated as soldiers are knowing that their homeland and the very survival of their personal families is on the line. They should be motivated to fight as never before. Nearby is the strategic Philistine city of Gath. Gath has been a thorn in Israel's side, and Gath militarily controls access to the whole country. In other words, a strong point of the Philistines is pushing into a weak part of Israel. The armies have aligned and faced each other across a very small, shallow valley, and survival is on the line for Israel. Gath is so impressive and so fearsome that even in the days of Joshua, you'll read that Joshua did not conquer Gath. It always stood as a place of darkness and failure for the people of Israel. That's why verse 4 is so significant. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. And I don't know why Bible translations do this. That's an ancient form of measurement. Let me tell you how tall Goliath was. He was from a race of giants that populated that part of the ancient world. What the writer is telling you here quietly at the Goliath of Gath, this soldier that strode into the valley, is nine feet nine inches tall. I don't know, none of, none of us have ever met anybody that tall, but I don't know if you've ever met someone who's in a 1% height percentile. A few years ago, when my, one of my kids was still playing water polo, I went to Edison High School, and I didn't know it at the time, but one of the tallest men on the country was on campus. 
He was standing in a walkway toward where I was headed, and he was well over seven feet tall. He was so tall, in fact, that in the darkness, I did not think he was human. I thought somebody had left a giant sign in the walkway. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why would they put, a, why would they put sign, signage and advertising right where we need to walk? And then what I thought the sign was started moving. And I stopped and paid careful attention, and I realized the sign has arms, and the sign has a head, and I thought, my goodness, that's a man. And it was unsettling. I'm not small, but he was gigantic, and Goliath is nine feet, nine inches tall with armor to match. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. What that means is his body armor was 125 pounds. He's wearing a person. (laughs) He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. That means 15 pounds. The head of his spear was 15 pounds. With the shaft behind it. If he threw this towards you and connected, this is going through you. You're going to be torn in half. This is size and strength that is beyond normal humanity. And if that weren't enough, verse 7 says, his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now that may seem strange and showy to you, but actually Goliath is using an ancient custom of warfare. Warfare in these days constituted the death of thousands of people at once. What generally followed was genocide. So to limit bloodshed, occasionally warring nations would agree not to fight army against army, but champion against champion. Goliath is walking into the valley of Elah saying, I'm the best among the Philistines, send me a man. And here's the agreement. If I kill him, you all surrender. You're our slaves from this day forward. If he has fortune and kills me, we promise to serve you as your slaves. Now the biblical story and the reason I walked you through so much detail to put you in the part of God's redemptive story here is it's pretty obvious who should be standing in the valley to face this man. Saul. He's the tallest among Israel. His character has already been shown to be deficient, though, because if you look in previous chapters, the day Saul was to be proclaimed king of Israel, they had to go find him because he was hiding. First Samuel says he was hiding among the baggage, and when he stood up, people were impressed. You know, once this guy stops hiding, he's really impressive. 
Well, that's a coronation day. That's a proclamation day. That's a ceremony. This is real life, and his nation's life hangs in the balance. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem because the nation is at war, but life goes on. The sheep have to be fed. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Can you imagine the humiliation? For 40 consecutive days. This soldier stood in the valley and said, Why are you here? I see you lined up. I see your shields. I see your swords. I see your banners. You look like soldiers. Not all of you need to fight. Just pick the best among you. Send me one guy and bring it. And for 40 days, they go through the sad charade of lining up and doing nothing. Here's where God intervenes through an idea he gave David's dad. Jesse said to David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers and also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them. Let's read through the details here. Do you see what's happening? David is being sent, basically, to the battle lines with granola (laughs) and cheese sandwiches. The bread is for their brothers. The cheese is for the commander. Maybe Jesse's thinking, I hope they put my boys in the back. Maybe if I feed a few of these guys, their commander will put my three in the back where nothing will happen to them. So off David goes. Just a shepherd boy turned errand boy. A boy who is literally going to start doing man's work. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And I think that's a little irony. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. You have to see this. Tens of thousands of men moving forward, singing bloody songs, singing songs of war, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the baggage, of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers as he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Uh Uh-oh. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. 
And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Let me explain that to you. Saul, tall, handsome Saul, is so desperate that he has said to anyone in the nation, if anybody can go out and handle this guy, here's the deal. I'll open up the national treasury, I'll give you my daughter so you're part of royalty, and no taxes for the rest of your life. He's desperate, and there's no takers. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, notice his disbelief, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. The greatest little brother answer in the history of the Bible. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? In other words, what, I can't talk? I'm just asking. You see, there's thousands of men on this battlefield, but the only one who can clearly see what's happening is the kid who showed up with cheese sandwiches. He can't believe that his tall king is quaking in his tent. He can't believe that all these soldiers, some of whom were from his hometown that he's grown up admiring, David can't believe his tall older brother is among those who were holding back, content only to sing the war songs but not step forward when it's actually time to go to war. He can't believe it. He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught it. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Notice, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) You're right to pick up the humor. The story is told purposely this way. It actually happened. It's recorded history. The Spirit of God is inspiring His author to tell the story in this specific way with these specific details so that you can't miss the difference between these two men. Look how ridiculous this gets. Verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his armor 
He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Saul's so desperate that he's not willing to offer his life and his courage. He's willing to let this young boy go and put Saul's own armor on him. David knows better. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand." When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaaraim as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. Why is this story here? Why does the New Testament tell me later that the stories in the Old Testament were written for my encouragement, for my strengthening, for my warning? The invitation to ordinary people who are reading this as history of who God is and how God works is that they will imitate the faith of David. The shepherd boy who was providentially sent at just the right time to hear Goliath's blasphemies and curses and defiance of the living God. Here's what makes the difference. Two things to tell you about this story. And then I want to point out to you the opportunity you have in this new year. First of all, When ordinary people believe God, extraordinary things happen because when people believe God, first, they see the strength of God, not the size of the opposition. That's the difference between Saul and David. Tall as Saul was, 
He was no match physically for Goliath, and he knew it. Saul kept his attention focused firmly on his own strength, his own history, his own capacity, and in the size of an, oppos- of an opposing soldier that big, that strong, and that terrifying, he found himself a coward. If you'll notice in this story, everything is lined up against David. There's a terrifying soldier standing in front of him. There's a petrified group of soldiers from his own nation quaking behind him. He's got his older brother beside him saying, you're such a rotten brat. I know you've just come to watch. This isn't a place for a boy like you. Go home and take care of the sheep. David and David alone is remembering God's word and remembering God's promises. He remembers that these kinds of people should have been driven from the land generations earlier, and they weren't. Because people had been looking at the size of the opposition and the size of the problem for decades and centuries, and no one had stepped forward to believe God the way David did. And the second thing is this. If you believe God... Anyone can be a person after God's own heart and succeed where more apparently qualified people have feared and failed. The point of the story of Saul and David is that Saul is only outwardly impressive. David is not. David is the kid brother watching the sheep far from home. When Samuel shows up to anoint the new king of Israel, David isn't even invited. It's in no one's mind that David can have a faith like he proved to have, and the invitation is, you read all across the Bible, the ordinary, normal people that God uses to do his work and bring his blessings all have this in common. They believe God enough to obey him. That's all it takes. The qualification, I'm told by the Bible, to please God is simply to trust God. Not to trust him with mottos and slogans and songs. There were plenty of mottos and slogans and songs on the battle line. Those men absurdly lined up for war, put on their armor, went to the front line for 40 consecutive days singing about their strength, their courage, and what they were going to do to the enemy, and then being taunted twice a day for 40 days, went back home every day more embarrassed than they had been the day before because nobody was willing to step forward as David was and say, I believe God enough to actually do what he said. You see, you can tell yourself And even the Lord and even the people looking at you, how much you trust God. But trust in God is always and only shown by one thing. Obedience to God. Wherever God has spoken, you must obey Him to see His blessings. You must obey Him to please Him. All it takes to be fully qualified in God's sight is to trust Him enough to do what He says. Here's how Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 explains it. Read this with me. This is actually drawn, this is in the New Testament, but drawing from all the stories of the Old Testament where those precious few dared to trust God enough to do what God said. Read Hebrews 11 verse 6 with me please. It says, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God 
must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If you don't trust Him, you can't please Him. Simple as that. You can know all about Him, you can know all His names, you can know all His deeds, but if you don't personally trust Him enough to do what He says, you will not draw near to Him, you will not do what He asks, you will miss your reward because our God is the kind of God who actually is there and rewards those who seek Him. David is just a pale picture of Jesus. David prefigured our true king, our true shepherd, our true savior, Jesus. Listen to the way Peter explains it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, I want you to see the trust that Jesus, the Son of God, having become a human being to stand in our place and become our savior, I want you to see how he trusted his father while he was dying on the cross. This is faith perfected. This is obedience to the full. This is the man Jesus, the Word of God become flesh, standing in our place, trusting God as we always should. We never have fully. We never will perfectly on this side. This is the good news of Jesus, our true shepherd, our true king. Peter writes regarding Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's trusting his Father. He's not avenging himself. He's not cursing men on return. He is perfectly trusting his Father so that he could take our sins on his body on the tree. Here's the purpose for your new year. Here's the purpose for what you have left in life. You were made to die to sin and live in righteousness. The story of David and Goliath tells us this amazing truth. People who believe God are going to live for His purpose and bless His people. And that can be you. The few heroic stories in the Old Testament, all imperfect until Jesus comes, always portray the same dynamic. People are all in the same kind of trouble with a world that is against them and sins they cannot conquer. But a precious few hear the word of God and not only know it and quote it, they actually believe it enough to put it into practice. And those precious few, men and women, all ordinary, because that's all God has to work with, is ordinary people, those few who believe God end up living for God's purpose and, like hardly any of their contemporaries, blessing and even leading His people. So can I just ask you, a step from 3,000 years ago into your own life, is there any habitual part of your life where you just think you know better than God? Where you habitually disobey Him? See, because the striking, tragic, and perfectly relatable part about Saul 
is that. Saul always has his reasons. I didn't walk you through all of his tragedy, and his arc is going to be much more tragic before his life is over. His life is going to end in disgrace and shame. And all of that was prefigured in the very beginning of his life because in simple, ordinary things, where all Saul had to do was obey God, where all Saul had to do was wait for Samuel, Saul always had his reasons. The people forced me. I was under pressure. I know what God said, but I had a better way. His insistence on his own cleverness is what kept him quaking in the tent and made an ordinary shepherd boy step forward so that you are hearing his story 3,000 years later. The opportunity that all of us have in this new year is to simply take God at His word and whatever we think of it, to put it into practice. People who do discover that when they simply obey God, suddenly they're living out God's purpose for His life and discover that it goes way beyond personal success. That the ordinary people who take God at His word and obey Him actually end up blessing people all around them. Could be you. If only you'll take God at his word and believe him as David did. Let's pray together. If I could be very specific. Friend, do you have any habitual sin in your life? You have a strong point like Gath that just can't consistently stay under God's direction. You always have a reason. You always have a story. Could I invite you to talk to God honestly and humbly about it? He knows about it already. There's nothing you can tell God that He doesn't already know. There's no sin, no secret, no shame that He doesn't love you in already. That's why He sent Jesus to die for your sins. But if you find habitual sin in your life that is always defeating you, talk to Him honestly about it. Ask Him for the grace to begin obeying Him. And when you fail and slide back, to simply begin with fresh, simple, childlike obedience. And watch what He does in this new year. I don't know, there's so many things in our life that are difficult. Every bit of life can be difficult. Even the best parts, even the blessed parts. Friends, family jobs, opportunities that we're given, plans that we have for the future, it all gets difficult because the enemy has his own plan. And it all requires faith. It all requires simply trusting God. So on this, the cusp at the very beginning of this new year, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray to your Heavenly Father and ask Him to give you a heart like David's that will not look at circumstances, not make excuses, that you'll take him at his word and simply do what he said. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the good news is he lived and died for you. He was on the cross refusing to avenge himself, refusing even to curse the men who were killing him as they were cursing him because he was living and dying for you. Friend, if you'll give up on yourself and take Him as Savior, He will save you. He's done it for me. He's done it for untold millions. 
your circumstances, your past, your failures, none of that matters. That's actually why he came. That's what took him to the cross. Your failure, your rebellion, your disobedience, your foolishness, mine, that's what took Jesus to the cross. If you'll turn away from it and turn to him, he'll save you this morning.